So Christopher, last week we spoke about your early life, your career at Cambridge, and certain aspects of your time in the chair of the London School of Economics. Today, I hope we can briefly talk about some of the cases in which you're involved at LSE, and then discuss your contributions as a judge at the International Court of Justice. We can then just touch on your recent time at Morgan with some general observations. Before we do that, could we just backtrack to last week's conversation where you mentioned that while at Cambridge you took several sabbaticals. And for completeness sake, uh, could you mention when these were, and perhaps where you went and what your activities were? Yes, certainly. Um, I was on sabbatical twice when I was here, um, in 1987 to 88, and then again in 1994 to 95. Um, the 1987 to 88 sabbatical, uh, I, I didn't go away for any large part of it, but I did go to a lot of international conferences, which were very interesting, um, including one in Jerusalem at the height of the Intifada, which was, uh, to put it mildly, uh, quite a, an exhilarating experience. Um, and uh, I, it was at about that time also that I started doing some work in practice, mainly as a result of being brought into some work by David Calcutt, who was the head of the chambers I was then in and master of the college at the time. Thank you. You also mentioned last week some teaching which you hadn't covered in the conversation with regard to international law and modern conflict. Do you care to elaborate on that? Yes. One of the things that struck me when I was doing the LLB, as it then was in international law, is that there's a, a gap between what you may be aware of as history and what you can actually remember from your own experience. And so in my case, as a student in the 1970s, um, I could remember quite a lot about the Vietnam War, but Korea, Suez, the Hungarian uprising and so on, hadn't made it into any of the history books that I'd used and happened either before I was born or when I was much too young to remember what was going on. And it occurred to me that it would be worth introducing some lectures on how international law impacted on those events that, as it were, existed in that gap between history and memory, and then through into the contemporary period. So uh, I'm afraid I rather shamelessly used my position as Secretary of the Faculty Board to uh, put myself down to do a once a week lecture course on this, um, which I offered to the LLM students and to students doing the MPhil in international relations. And uh, I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was, uh, I, I gave those lectures right the way through my time here at Cambridge and was rather sorry to lose them when I went to the LSE. I imagine there was very good take up for them. Uh, yes, there was, considering it wasn't examined. Uh, we used to get a good take up from both groups and uh, occasionally people would bring a guest, which was, uh, always rather interesting. I remember one lecture when I, I made a passing reference to uh, something called the Harib Fort incident, which is now buried in the mists of time, but it involved um, British planes based in Aden bombing some targets in Yemen. And uh, there's always been some argument about whether lots of people were killed or whether, as the RAF put it, the only casualty was a goat. And at the end of the lecture, an RAF officer who'd been was doing an MPhil, uh, came up to me and introduced me to the person he'd brought with him. And this man was an air vice marshal. He just looked at me and said, I'm the goat killer of Harib. I commanded that operation. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, uh, back to the London School of Economics, where you were involved in numerous cases, both the international and the UK level. 13 cases I counted, three at the ICJ, three at the Human Rights Court, two at the Court of Justice, three exit cases, two untrust cases, and you were expert witness for one case. Also, there were nine cases before UK courts. So how did this affect your teaching and your administrative duties? Well, I certainly hope it didn't um, detract from my teaching in any way. I think it was actually a great help to be able to bring some practical experience to that teaching. I'd benefited from that at Cambridge from the lectures of people like Derek Bowett 
and later, though I wasn't a student at the time, watching Eddie Lauterpacht in action. And uh, I think the students found it uh, found it helpful. It's also quite useful to get people to focus on the sort of decisions that have to be made in practice. Uh, the Pinochet case, for example, which we touched on last time, is a good example. The issues in Pinochet are very appear in a very different way if you look at them from the standpoint of what was actually going on in court, as opposed to taking a step back and saying, oh, well, of course, you know, this is how academically we would look at it. The two feed on one another. Um, there was one case I was involved in, a case called Jones in Saudi Arabia, where I appeared for the, um, the Secretary of State for Constitutional Affairs, as he then was. And uh, I can remember a, a, a colleague giving a paper about this case afterwards. And it was a very interesting paper, but it completely missed the point of how that case had come about and what issues the court could and couldn't decide. So I like to think that having a foothold in practice as well made me a better teacher. Uh, it certainly made for getting up early in the morning and working rather long hours. So were these cases arranged by the chambers? Uh, yes and no. Um, some of them came to me purely through chambers. Some of them were uh, cases where I was contacted personally and then got in touch with chambers. Uh, a bit of both, I would say. Thank you. So in this casework, you didn't concentrate or specialise in law of war conflicts. This topic was more common to your academic interests, particularly your book chapters. You broadened your interest greatly to deal with for example, human rights, boundary disputes, the law of the sea. And in this respect, you represented Honduras along with Felix Sanz as an advisor in the 2007 Nicaragua-Honduras case in the Caribbean mm. Sea. And the ownership of the Verbal Islands was one of the issues. And with the Coco River Delta and the extension of the border to the boundary after sea, became an issue of both colonial legacy on the continental shelf, as well as geological aspects. So you weren't only delving into historical records, but you're having to familiarize yourself with the pattern of the river mouth and the creation of deltas. And I thought this must have been absolutely fascinating. Yes, it was. And uh, I took that, you know, that, that was very useful um, background for when I became a judge at the International Court, because we did a lot of work on maritime boundaries. The thing about rivers is that uh, they shift constantly. It's it's something that the British occasionally have difficulty grasping because our rivers are relatively stable compared with rivers in much of the world. Uh, but the boundary can shift massively over time as a result of a river silting up and the uh, the estuary changing shape. And if the mouth of the river is the starting point for the maritime boundary, uh, it can make an enormous difference what period you look at and how you uh, determine that starting point. I found it rather fascinating. Uh, in terms of the continental shelf, there are also, of course, there's the historical evidence about uh, uh, mining exploitation, fishing in the resources of the water column above it. We've rather moved away from, there was a period when there was a lot of very heavy science about tectonic plates, um, but the International Court rather snuffed that out in the 1980s. Very interesting. Um, I remember when I spoke to Judge Crawford that he mentioned how much pleasure he derived from mixing so many different areas of knowledge, from mining to geography to geology to yes. history and so on. It gave him great pleasure as well. In our previous conversation, you mentioned the Bankovich case, and I know that you can't talk about the specifics, but I found an interesting comment in a paper by Judge Lucas apropos this case, in which he quotes Lord Justice Sedley, who said that you submitted that Bankovich was a watershed case in the court's jurisprudence. And I wonder if you could say briefly what the nature of this watershed in international jurisprudence is was. Well, I think there before Bankovich, there had been a lot of speculation about the extent to which the European Convention on Human Rights applied to what different organs of state did in terms of their action outside the territory of the state concerned. Uh, now, 
It's relatively easy to see how the convention could be applied, for example, to the detention of a prisoner uh, outside, because the pr- the prisoner is still within the jurisdiction of the state that is uh, detaining him or her. Uh, and remember, the European Convention lays down rights which a state has to uh, respect as regards people within its jurisdiction. Now, a school of thought had grown up that said you can apply that also to huge areas of warfare. And Bankovic, I think, excludes that possibility where you're talking about, for example, aerial bombardment, which was the issue there, long-range bombardment, uh, conflicts between two opposing armies. It doesn't cut it out in relation to other aspects, such as the governance of occupied territory, uh, which uh, was the subject of a number of later cases, including the one in which Lord Justice Sedley was sitting. Thank you. Also, you list arbitrations in which you were involved, and these seem to have begun in 2008, just before you left the London School of Economics. And uh, without obviously commenting on the cases, was there a particular type of case in which you specialised? No, I, I was quite happy to do any of these investor state cases. They're all very exciting. Um, and I also did some interstate arbitrations on maritime boundaries um, between Guyana and Suriname, Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados. Um, the thing about the investor state cases is there's a, a sort of basic corpus of law, which is common to all of them. Most favoured nation treatment, uh, fair and equitable treatment, expropriation. But the underlying facts that give rise to the claim can vary enormously. The last case I did was a billion dollar claim against Pakistan, where I was appearing for Pakistan, which was all about a motorway construction project. Um, It was a very interesting case to do. And I was glad to say that I was able to leave practice on a a high note because we won and the claimants didn't get anything. Well, uh, I remember Dan Ross and Higgins saying while he was she undertook a lot of pastoral work. Did you find the same situation? I did more pastoral work here at Cambridge. I was a tutor for um, seven years before I went to LSE, and I was dean for five years before that. Um, I always greatly enjoyed the pastoral side of things. Pastoral work at LSE was very different because you tended to refer the, you didn't have the same relationship with your tutees, and you didn't see students in small supervision groups. Um, but yes, I, I, I did continue with my pastoral work and I continued it, considered it to be important. And the highlights of your time at LSE? I think the highlights would definitely be the, as far as I'm concerned, would be the teaching. I enjoyed very much being able to concentrate on international law. Um, but whereas for a lot of people, teaching master students and supervising PhDs became the focus, I enjoyed that. But I also enjoyed teaching the basic international law course to undergraduates. Um, I've always found teaching undergraduates very stimulating. And I think it's the place where you test out whether you can actually explain a complicated idea in terms that uh, people can understand. After 13 years at LSE, you were elected to the bench of the International Court of Justice. What procedure did your appointment follow? (laughs) Well, it's Byzantine, the process for appointment to the International Court of Justice. You first have to be nominated by the national group at the Permanent Court of Arbitration, um, which in the case of the British has by tradition been um, vigorously independent of government. Uh, The group that nominated me was chaired by Sir Arthur Watts, a former Foreign Office legal advisor, but it included Lord Bingham, the uh, presiding law lord, Dame Rosalind Higgins, who was then the British judge at the International Court, and Sir Eli Lauterpacht. And if you knew any of those four, you would know that nobody was going to give them instructions about anything at all. And they nominated me as the candidate to replace uh, Rosalind when she was retiring from the court. And I had an interesting year of going round um, several meetings, several rounds of meetings at the UN but also trips to uh, the Middle East and to Southern Africa and a number of other countries uh, in uh, in Europe to, to lobby uh, for support. 
It's alien to the British tradition, this idea of judges having election addresses and going around campaigning for uh, for votes, but I'm afraid it's an integral part of the um, process with the International Court. Interesting, she mentioned that uh, when she was appointed, it was Lord Gough who was at the arbitration, mm-hmm. uh, at the, was it the Court of Arbitration. The National Group, yes. The National Group, and uh, she found it a, a, actually a very exciting process. Um, was it easy to make the decision to leave LSE? Um, well, it I wouldn't say it was easy. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to become a judge at the International Court, so I'd made the decision if it was offered to me, I would take it, um, or if the nomination was offered to me, I'd take it. I was beginning to find the stress of trying to be a professor and a barrister at the same time uh, was taking its toll. Um, you know, it's fine getting up at five in the morning when you're in your 40s. By the time you're in your late 50s, it's less than... You're less enthusiastic about it. And I'm very unenthusiastic about it now. I'm in my late 60s. Um, Did you move to The Hague? Um, We kept our house here in Cambridge. Um, We've we've always, my wife and I have lived in Cambridge ever since we met when we were students. And uh, we kept our house in Girton, but we bought a flat in The Hague, a very nice flat, um, which I much regretted having to sell nine years later, Um, but with some splendid views out over the... um, the part of the Hague that around the International Court. So did you enjoy living there? Very much indeed. It's a lovely city. Um, people mock it as being very quiet. Um, biggest little village in Europe is one of the descriptions I've heard. Um, but in fact, it's very easy to get around. Excellent public transport, good theatres, art galleries, um, some very nice restaurants. And uh, we found the life there very, very enjoyable indeed. You joined the Harsher Divide Society. Are you still a member of this? I am, yes. They very kindly give honorary membership to uh, uh, judges of the international courts. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, taking part there. They have a very nice pavilion up on the beach in uh, Schrevening, which uh, offers restaurant facilities during the summer. And uh, we've made ample use of that. I visited that beach when I was after I as a reward after I interviewed uh, Judge Crawford mm-hmm. and I thought it very beautiful actually. During this time you were involved in 38 cases and I wondered which was the most difficult to decide. Well I'd probably better not say which was the most difficult to decide at one level. There, It wouldn't be proper of me to say that I'd found the arguments in the case very finely balanced. Um, there were a number of cases I found particularly interesting. The first one I did, which was a river boundary case between Nicaragua and Costa Rica and about navigation rights on the river, I found rather fascinating because I'd never done a, a case about river iron rights before. River, river mouth was the start of a maritime boundary, yes, but I'd never done cases about river navigation rights. Normally with a river, the boundary, if it's an international boundary, the boundary either follows the middle of the river or the middle of the navigable channel in the river, if the river is navigable. This was an exception. Uh, The river here is entirely in Nicaraguan territory, so the boundary is on the Costa Rican bank of the river. But Costa Rica has navigational rights. And the question is what that included. Did it include, for example, the right to take tourist boats to take photographs of the wildlife there, which was not something they were thinking about in the 1850s. And that case rather haunted me throughout my time there because it was also the last case I worked on. Um, the, at the mouth of that river, there is a, an area of swampland called the Iapotios. And uh, that was the subject of two more cases between Nicaragua and uh, Costa Rica. And one of those was the last one I sat on. Well, uh, I was actually going to ask you about... Um how impressed I was by, well, first of all, the number of cases that dealt with boundary issues, um, and then the fact that there are so many cases involving Nicaragua and its neighbours, mostly Costa Rica, and I, I just looked at a map and I flew there by Google Earth and looked at my what I was preparing for this, but I saw that the borders were in the rainforest, so maybe it's understandable up to a point. But I also could see that there was a very 
tortuous colonial history, which even includes British Protestant settlements. Nevertheless, why was or is Nicaragua so litigious? I think in Nicaragua's case, they had a great success in the international court, as they saw it in the 1980s, in their case against the United States. And that helped create a mindset that the court was a resource that Nicaragua should use. But the Central American and Southern American countries have always been uh, very keen supporters of the court. Uh, you get a very large number of cases between them in the International Court of Justice and generally a very high record of compliance as well. But I agree with you, Nicaragua was exceptional. <laughs> and mostly with Costa Rica on the list of cases on the ICJ side. There were several, yes. The first case that you were involved with in 2009 culminated in a judgment which James Crawford lauded and that was the obligation to prosecute or extradite the Belgian Senegal judgment mm-hmm. of 2012. So were you conscious that this was a case close to his heart because he was your professor at the time? I didn't know it was particularly close to James's heart, I must admit, and I didn't discuss it with him. Uh, I, one of the disadvantages of becoming a judge is that you're rather more restricted in what you can discuss with your circle of friends because James was counsel in so many cases before the ICJ that even in the cases that he wasn't counsel in, I found it difficult to discuss them with him openly. Um, I was conscious that it was a very important case. I think it was a case that was going to be a trailblazer. And I'm glad that we decided the case the way we did, both at the provisional measure stage and then, more importantly, at the merits. He claimed that, well, this case followed his Article 48 of the ILC recommendations, in which he claimed to have been his greatest achievement in international law. I'm not sure I would say it was his greatest achievement. It's hard to pick with James because he had so many, but um, it certainly was a major achievement. And yes, I think it did have a significant influence on the court. So were there any colleagues with whom you had a particularly strong affinity on the court? Uh, relations on the court were very good across the board, um, especially considering what varied backgrounds we came from. For example, when I joined the court, the Chinese judge there, Shi Ju Yong, older than my father, um, he has outlived my father, and uh, he, you know, his, he'd had his university education before the revolution in China. Uh, so obviously, you know, we came from very different backgrounds. And I think I may have mentioned to you in the previous session that there were five of us who were all about the same age. We all became judges in our early to mid-50s. And uh, the different experiences we had had. I had a a thoroughly enjoyable time as a student at Cambridge. At the same time as Julia Sepatinde, my Ugandan counterpart, was studying at Makerere University in the days when the Idi Amin terror was taking place. And... uh, uh, she once said to me, we went in fear of our lives every time we went to a lecture. So it's it's interesting that you get those very different backgrounds. I did have certain very close friends on the court, um, Judge Sepulveda from Mexico, whom I got to know when I went there, uh, Judge Donahue, who's now the president, the American judge, um, uh, Judge Keith from New Zealand. Um, you know, we perhaps were closer than I was with some of the others. Uh, were there any physical or administrative changes or improvements made to the court during your time there? Uh, the one that I think is most important is that we actually started to take IT a bit more seriously. Um, the court had been very slow in adopting um, computerization and even slower still to use uh, the facility to access documents from outside the building. Um, but I think we managed to make some considerable progress. So it's one of the things I, I feel I managed to achieve when I was there because I chaired the IT committee for quite a long time. The proof of that particular pudding is that they were able to cope with the pandemic much more easily because each judge could log into all the documents they needed from home. Now, that may not seem very revolutionary because law firms have been doing this for years and so had national courts, but um, it certainly seemed like a revolution in the pencil and paper world of the International Court. Yes. Um, apropos the presidents that you served under, 
any comments you could share? I, I served under three presidents, uh, Judge Awada from Japan, who was president for my first three years, uh, then Judge Tonka from Slovakia, and finally Judge Abraham from France. I thought they were all very good presidents uh, in with strengths in different areas, and uh, it was a pleasure to work with them all. Would you say that it's inevitable that countries with a long history of international law, such as the UK, will become progressively less influential in the field? Uh, in one respect, yes, because many that expertise is now present in many more countries than was once the case, and uh, that's a great, that can only be a good thing. Um, you know, obviously, I would regret any diminution of influence of the United Kingdom, and I regretted losing my seat at the court as uh, as part of that process. But uh, I think it's wonderful that you now have so many countries where there are really first-rate international lawyers and where governments are taking international law very seriously. I think roughly half the states in the world have now appeared in proceedings in the ICJ, either as parties or as states taking part in advisory proceedings. And that's a, a dramatic change from when I was a student. Thank you. So while you're at the ICJ, you were a member of various committees, and you've mentioned that you chair the Information and Technology Committee. You were also on the Budgetary and Administrative Committee. Yes. <laughs> yes, the Budget and Administrative Committee is a sort of cross that judges have to bear, I think. But um, what I enjoyed about that is it gave me a chance to, to do what I could to improve the conditions of the staff in the court, which I thought was very, a very important priority. The Rules Committee? I was only on that for three years and uh, didn't have anything like the same impact. We weren't doing very much in the Rules Committee at the time. Uh, I had hoped that if Judge Crawford had lived, he would have presided over a major revision of the rules, which I think is, is frankly overdue. Uh, and not just the rules, the working methods that go with them. Um, but it was interesting to serve on you say something of the honours that were awarded to you during this period? You became an honorary fellow of the Nautilus Centre. Well, that was a particular pleasure, I have to say, because I'd I'd been involved in the Lauterbach Centre from the start, and although I'd never it had never been the base from which I worked, I was very supportive of it and very keen on what Ellie had achieved with it. So uh, I was delighted to accept that. An honorary fellow of Morden in two thousand and nine. Well, again, you know, that was a, a terrific um, pleasure. I've been connected with Maudlin ever since 1972 when I came here for interviews, so um, it was uh, an accolade that meant a great deal to me. In 2012, you became Vice President of the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Yes, that's something I enjoy. I think the British Institute's a very important organisation. It doesn't have the impact in Britain yet that the American society has in the United States, but I think it is... It's building up that reputation, and it's a wonderful focus for bringing together uh, practitioners, public sector lawyers, and academics. Uh, and there isn't as much of that in Britain as, as I would like. Interesting. You also became, in 2015, a member of the Institute for International. Uh, an associate at that stage, yes. I was elected in 2015 uh, as an associate. I uh, became a member in 2019. You have to go to three uh, sessions of the Institute before you can progress from associate to full member. So I only became a full member in 2019. In 2018, you at which it was bestowed? Uh, yes. The, you know, I'm not in a position to say why um, I was appointed a Knight Grand Cross. It was certainly something which uh, I, I felt very honoured to be given. Um, the ceremony was uh, the third time I'd been to Buckingham Palace and uh, something I, I was 
I shall always remember is that I've had all three generations of the royal family uh, because the Queen gave me my CMG, uh, Prince Charles knighted me in 2009, and uh, Prince William conferred the GBE on me in 2018. Um, That's very nice. So it was always, uh, yes, they were very nice occasions indeed. When you left the ICJ in 2018, you became President Judge of the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal. I became a judge, not president. Um, the the Iran US Claims Tribunal was set up after the as part of the deal under which the US diplomatic um, staff were released by Iran in nineteen eighty one and various assets of Iran in the US were unfrozen. Um, it consists of nine judges, three appointed by America, three by Iran, and three uh, neutrals. Um, I am an American for these purposes. And the way that came about was a few weeks after I'd left the International Court. Um, my friend, one of the American judges, David Caron, very sadly died completely unexpectedly. And uh, on the death of a member, the rules require that the state nominating that person nominate a replacement within 30 days, which is quite a short time span for a government. And uh, I think for various reasons, people being conflicted out and so on, and suddenly this Englishman being available, uh, they were prepared to nominate me, which I thought was a great, uh, great honour. And I very much enjoyed working there. In 2020, two years after leaving the ICJ, you were appointed as master here at Magdalen. What were the circumstances of that? Well, the mastership at Magdalen was historically in the gift of the visitor of the college, um, Lord Braybrook. Um, and it was only some 10 years ago that the college statutes were changed to provide that the master would be elected by the governing body, which is the much more normal practice in Cambridge. Um, I'm only the second master to have been elected. And uh, I, to be honest, it came as a considerable surprise because I thought I was too old. And uh, I hadn't realised the college was in the process of changing its statutes so as to remove the compulsory retirement age for the master. And obviously it was a tremendous delight to come back to my old college as master. And uh, I accepted the offer with enthusiasm and I've never regretted it since. Did you find that it had altered in any meaningful way since you were here, in, what, 24 years ago and you left in 1996? Yes, it has. Um, well, you know, the whole of, the whole academic world has changed. Um, we now have... Uh, for the biggest change in Morden, of course, was the admission of women, but that happened when I was here. And by the time I left, it was already so well established that there was no need to talk about it. Um, academic standards have improved quite dramatically since I left here. And, uh, you know, we now get something like 100 firsts a year, whereas... Um, 20 or 30 was considered good going in the past. The, I think there's been a greater professionalization of academic life. Um, people, you have fewer of the people who have, are basically just college folk who sit around and maybe aren't always as constructive as they could be. At the same time, the demands on fellows are now huge because most fellows are pursuing a very active career in their faculty or department and doing their teaching and pastoral work here in college. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very considerable um, and time-consuming task. Thank you. You followed in the footsteps of Rowan Williams. Were there any features that he introduced for our master, or could you, as a new incumbent, start with a clean slate, so to speak? Well, the, the trouble is I, I started without a slate at all because I started on the 1st of October 2020 and the, um, the pandemic was in full swing. We had about three, four weeks of very limited contact here in college before the second lockdown was imposed. And then essentially that prevented any kind of ordinary in-person contact from the beginning of November through to the end of the following April. Uh, so I'm still, in some respects, I'm treating this year as my first year in office and trying to find my way. Very interesting. Um, with the shadow of the pandemic, um, it must have affected your role hugely in the first 
Yes, it's meant that I haven't been, my wife and I weren't able to get to know the students and the other and the fellows in the way in which I had hoped. And we're still trying to edge our way through that. Um, you know, the best we could manage with the students last year was to, once the lockdown was relaxed at the end of April, to have people round for drinks in the Master's Garden. It's a lovely sunny day today, but if you remember what the weather was like in May 2021, it was absolutely terrible. Um, one student said it gives chilling out a whole new meaning. Um, have there thus far been any notable events? Uh, yes, we're, we're getting back to, to doing things the, the way we, we wanted to. We've had, um, uh, we had a very good round of results in the Tripos and the examined master's courses last summer. Uh, we're beginning to get back to having uh, guest lectures in college, uh, formal dinners and so on. Uh, we haven't yet had any one particularly striking event. Does this position give you any time to engage in your musings on international law? Musings? No, not really. <laughs> I've got a couple of Festschrift articles which are long overdue, which I shall try and work on over the vacation. That would enable me to muse. But I, I, I have my work at the tribunal and I'm sitting as an arbitrator in a number of cases. So uh, the mastership here is part time. Uh, but the combination of that and my, my other work doesn't leave a lot of time free. In 2020, you were reader at Lentgerm Middle Temple. What does this entail? Historically, the reader was responsible for the education of barristers in the days before, and I'm going back hundreds of years, before there were organised um, bar courses. A student reading for the, the bar would go and um, watch cases in court and then go and dine with the barristers they'd been watching in the hall afterwards. And the reader was responsible for such lectures as there were. Um, that role is much diminished by the professional bar finals course that now exists. and. It does still involve some work on advocacy training and other such sessions in the inn, much curtailed, I'm afraid, because the lockdown started halfway through my term as reader. And the reader gives a reading, not technically a lecture, at the end of the reader's feast. I was fortunate enough to get my reader's feast in in February, so I was able to give the lecture in person. In London? In London, in the Middle Temple Hall. It sounds a, a wonderful occasion, actually. It was, it was great. Um, I was able to get my family here, including one of my sisters came all the way from Australia for it, which was very nice. And uh, we had um, a very large turnout of students and benches for it, which was very flattering. This brings us to your membership of learning societies and boards, editors. We've mentioned that you were, first of all, a member of the Institute you also a member of the American Society of International Law. Yes. Any comments on that? Yes, I've always, I've, I've always liked the American Society. I joined it as soon as I qualified and became a fellow here in 1978. And uh, I go to the conferences, the annual meeting, uh, as often as I can, usually about every other year. Uh, I've, uh, I was the keynote speaker there in 2018, which was, was very interesting. Uh, good chance to muse a bit about international law as you said and uh, I've always enjoyed the way it brings together students, practitioners, uh, academics, people from government. Uh, you get a very a very large uh, group, often as many as a thousand people and very interesting variety of people to meet and talk to. The Asian Society of International Yes, I'm afraid I haven't been very active in that. I am a member, but uh, I've never managed to get to any of their meetings. The European Society International uh, Again, I haven't been to any meetings. I read the, the journal when it comes out. You're a joint editor of the International Humanitarian Law Series. Um, I've just stepped down from that. I've become honorary editor. Um, I have to say that I feel a bit guilty about that series. It's a very good series of monographs, but the hard work has all been done by my colleague Tim McCormack, um, and I've largely been a, a sleeping partner. I didn't ask you about your membership of the International Law Association. Yes, I haven't been very active in the ILA for quite some years now. Uh, the, the British branch holds its meetings in London and uh, 
a combination of living and working in The Hague for many years and then being based here in Cambridge, I haven't been able to get to as many meetings as I would have liked. You're on the editorial board of the British Yearbook of International Law. Yes, that, that's not a particularly demanding job, I have to say, the, the hard work's done by the two editors. As well as the Cambridge Studies in International and Comparative Law. Yes, again, that doesn't require very, a very great deal of work on my part, but uh, it does mean I, I see some of the interesting monographs that come out. So, Christopher, just a general question on your view of international law. In March 2014, as you know, I had the privilege of interviewing your predecessor, United Kingdom judge on the International Court of Justice, Jane Marsden, and I learned that her formative training had taken place at Yale under Myers McDougall, and it was he who taught her that international law is not about rules, as I quote from her, she claimed which she still believes to this day. She expounded her views in her pioneering book, Development of International Law Through the Political Organs of the United Nations, which Derek Bauer reviewed in saying that she gave the clearest possible proof that international law is being developed in the most significant way by political organs of the United Nations. Mm. And during our interview, she explained what her friend Oscar Schachter had said of her book, that she faced squarely the, con the contention that the views of governments expressed in UN debates and resolutions can have little legal significance because they are adopted for political and self-serving interests. And in her own words on international law, she said, the job, and I quote, the job of the international lawyer is to look at the facts of the present case and at the policy issues involved and to find the preferred and better answer. And I wonder, Sir Christopher, whether you agree that international law as developed by the UN today, is not about developing rules, more about political processes and policy, and the job of judges thereof is to find the preferred and better answer. I don't think I'd go as far as that. In fact, I, I definitely wouldn't go as far as that. Um, I'm perhaps more conservative, more of a rules-based um, view of law, but uh, I entirely agree with Rosalind that uh, law, international law is developed by political processes. Now, ironically, much of English law is developed by political processes as well. It's called Parliament. It legislates. <laughs> Judges are, I think, in a different position. We, as a judge, you have to make decisions based on the law as it is at the moment, not on what you might like it to be in the future. However, much of the law is not clear. Uh, and indeed, with the International Court of Justice, it's unlikely that many of the cases that get there will be about the law that is clear. Litigation is expensive, it's time-consuming, and states tend to rely on it when they're not sure what the answer is. So I think, yes, there is a matter. it is a matter of going to the underlying values, to the broad principles. But there are a lot of rules as well. Um, some of them are very clear, some of them less so. Uh, but I don't think you can ignore them. I don't think Rosalind Higgins is suggesting that you ignore them either. Um, and I don't agree with Oscar Schachter that the positions taken by states in the UN uh, are of little or no significance in terms of law, because I don't think that they are quite as uh, politically expedient as he makes out. Uh, states have long-term ideas about how things should be, and those are reflected in what they do. After all, customary international law is based on state practice, supported by Opinio Juris, and I think that has to include the state, the practice of states in international organisations. Thank you. It's very interesting. You say in Who's Who that your interests are political biography and the novels of Anthony Trollope. <laughs> Yes, I used to include walking, but I'm afraid since I had um, started having trouble after I injured my foot in an accident about 10 years ago, I, I, walking has become aspirational rather than uh, recreational. Uh, I've always been fascinated by politics and by history, and I find the uh, political biography is perhaps one of the most interesting ways of getting under the skin of what happens in politics. Uh, I'm more interested in the biographies of people from the last couple of hundred years than I am in the often hagiographical works that get written about existing politicians. Uh, I'm more interested in digging behind the skin, for example, of uh, 
Churchill or Attlee than I am of looking at Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think that biographies of either of them at the moment would be particularly interesting. As for Anthony Trollope, I think he was by far the best observer of um, the politics of his day uh, and, of course, of the ecclesiastical politics of his day. I think the best novels of the lot are the ones about Barchester. His ecclesiastical um, reveries were, were wonderful. So, looking back, what would you assess your main contributions to international law have been so far as teacher, researcher, jurist? Well, I think that's more for others to say. I, I, I think the part that is most difficult to assess is teaching. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the 30 years I taught international law. I like to think that I made a difference to some of the, the students. I'm still in touch with quite a lot of my former students. And I hope that I had some influence there. Um, the, as a jurist, uh, as a practitioner and a, a judge, again, I hope that I was able to make a positive contribution to the development of international law. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in practice at a time when attitudes to international law in the English courts were undergoing a very considerable change. Um, before I really got into practice, um, one judge had quipped in her case, um, oh yes, international law, I know about that. English law is law, foreign law is fact, international law is fiction. And there was a lot of that around in the 70s and 80s. Moreover, if you had an international law point arise in court, it tended to be argued by counsel who specialised in commercial law or crime, as the case may be, um, sometimes with a professor of international law sitting behind them. And then in the early 90s, the ground shifted. And those of us, people like Vaughan Lowe, Ellie Lauterpark, myself, who were international law specialists based in universities, started arguing the cases ourselves. And... I, don't, I wouldn't say that it was because of that, but it went hand in hand with the judges taking international law much more seriously. I've never forgotten doing one sovereign immunity plea in front of a Supreme Court master, most of whose work would have been day-to-day -day procedural applications. And at the end of the case, he said, well, that was most interesting, gentlemen. He said to Lord Lloyd-Jones and myself, we were the opposing counsel, very different from what I normally do. If you have any more work like this, do keep me in mind, won't you? <laughs> uh, and I think that's, that epitomises that sea change. And then I tried to carry that on as a judge at the International Court. Um, I wrote very few separate and dissenting opinions, so I'm not going to be remembered for those. And of course, the work you put into the collective judgment remains confidential, so I can't tell you which judgments I was most involved with. Um, but I hope that the work I did there was good, sound work and will continue to be influential. Thank you. So how, if at all, has international law changed in over 40 years that you've been involved? Were there, for instance, any major shifts in focus with world events for Berlin War, 9-11? Yes, I think that, well, obviously the, the political um, foundations have changed dramatically and maybe in the process of changing again, but um, I think, in a way, international law is take, it's more important now in international affairs than it was when I started. The Cold War and the shadow that that cast, the immediate aftermath of colonialism, both tended to rub against the um, trend of international law. What I think changed everything, though I didn't, realise it was going to have such a dramatic effect at the start, uh, was the Law of the Sea Conference, culminating in the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, there, I think, for the first time, you had a really major change where the dominant influence came from the uh, third world countries, only a handful of whom had been heavily involved in international law before that. And that, I think, played an important part in the um, revival of the ICJ, which had been largely moribund in the mid-1970s. I think I may have mentioned to you before that there was only one case pending in the International Court when I was uh, a master's student. Uh, at any given time today, you get between 15 and 20. And I think international law has, become, has taken more of a centre stage.
Now, plenty of people will say that's nonsense. You know, what has international law done about climate change, for example? To which the short answer is international law is not there to solve the problem of climate change. It's there to provide one of the means by which states, if they wish to, can address particular climate change problems. But it's not a lawyer's problem to solve. It's not something which we have the um, machinery, the strength, or indeed the right to take on of of us ourselves. It hasn't stopped warfare. Well, maybe it hasn't, but it has made it a lot more difficult for states to just tear up the rules and behave as they wish. I think the idea of humanitarian law constraining what um, soldiers can do in wartime is taken far more seriously today than it was when I started. So, you know, the the picture's far from rosy, um, but it's an awful lot more interesting than it was 40 years ago. Thank you. So how, if at all, has Brexit affected the UK's interest or standing in international law? I think the jury's still out on that one. The uh, uh, I won't conceal the fact that I think Brexit was a disaster, um, wrong decision by Britain, but it's done, and you know there's no point in revisiting that debate now. Uh, it does, however, leave us with a very difficult relationship between Britain and its European neighbours, and I think a rather un, you know a big question mark about exactly what Britain's role in the wider world is going to be. Uh, you know, to what extent can Britain be influential as a, a medium-sized state, but still a nuclear power and a permanent member of the Security Council? Uh, now it is outside the framework of the now 27 EU states. Uh, I don't think it's in itself it's damaged any, Britain's reputation as a respecter of international law. I think that uh, it could do if we start tearing up agreements we've concluded. Uh, that, I think, would be very damaging. Uh, but uh, you know, a state is entitled to leave a treaty body if it wishes to do so. And that was the decision of a clear majority of the people. And I think it has to be respected, and has been respected. Thank you. So I would leave without asking your general thoughts on international law as it applies or not to the new regime in Afghanistan. I have some difficulty with the whole question of Afghanistan um, because my daughter served in the army there and uh, I find it, I still find I can't uh, with real equanimity discuss what has happened. I think it's a catastrophe that the West has effectively left people who left the women army officers, police officers, judges that we helped to train um, to the mercies of a government that has no sympathy for them. Uh, I very much hope it will be possible to avoid a humanitarian disaster there this winter, although I'm doubtful about that, and I hope that the new government means what it says about being different from, behaving differently from the way it behaved when it was last in power. But uh, the jury's out on that one too. Well, Sir Christopher, thank you very much indeed for another truly fascinating account. Thank you too for your kind hospitality last week at your home or today here at Morgan. I'm very grateful to you. Pandemic willing, I hope that we can reconvene in the new year to talk about your scholarly work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Lucy. Very nice to see you again. Thank you.